Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today I thought I would tackle a topic that I think can get a little confusing at times. There's a lot going on with it, and there are a ton of different parties, all with their own agendas and points of view, that make it kind of tricky to understand if you're trying to come at it from an objective, unbiased perspective. The topic is, of course, biofuels, which I imagine is in the title of this episode somewhere, so it shouldn't come as a surprise. Now, there are a lot of topics that are either directly or tangentially related to biofuels, and that makes this more complicated than just saying X material represents Y amounts of energy if you put it through process Z, right? If that's all it were, if we could just say, let's take these two different materials and say how much energy would you get after, say, burning them, uh, and that was it, it'd be a lot easier. But as it turns out, it's way more complex than that. There are environmental concerns. There are arguments about climate change. Really, the only argument is how can we alleviate it because climate change is undeniably a thing. Uh, I don't – well, I guess people can deny it, but they're wrong. Anyway, there are also national security considerations, and there's a lot more to think about too. So we're going to break this down, and we're going to get a deeper understanding about biofuels, what they are, what they aren't, and, you know, stuff like that. So this is one of those topics where it really is important to think critically about everything. I know I stress that a lot in this show, and in this particular topic, I think it it really comes to play. It's very easy to say fossil fuels are bad, and we should stop using them. Now, I happen to believe that that is true, that fossil fuels are not great for us to use and we should stop using them. But you also have to acknowledge why we use fossil fuels in the first place as opposed to other stuff. What is it about fossil fuels that makes most of the world dependent upon them for energy consumption purposes? And the answer isn't as simple as because big oil wants it that way. I mean, yeah, big oil does want it that way because any business leader wants their business to be a thriving one. But it's not as simple as conspiracy theories might make it seem. A lot of conspiracy theories try to wrap up very complicated issues and create a very simple message to deliver that. And it turns out that reality gets a lot more wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Now, my goal is to once again encourage critical thinking in which we examine a problem from many angles to determine what the best solution is. And that solution might be fully dependent upon whatever your specific goal happens to be. So, for example, if your goal is to move dependency away from big oil companies and countries with rich oil deposits that maybe aren't your friendliest neighbors, that's one thing, right? If that's your goal, if you say, I have identified what my goal is, I don't want to be dependent upon oil, well, then you can come up with lots of different potential solutions. But let's say that your goal is different. Maybe your goal is, I want to make the smallest environmental impact possible. Well, the solution may end up being a different one from the solution to goal number one. And if you have multiple goals, then you have to start weighing everything against each other and say, well, how do I prioritize this? How do I pick a solution that is not necessarily going to be the best at all of these, but is the best option out of all the different options I have? And like I said, it gets tough. So, we're going to start off as simply as we possibly can. 
which is asking the question, what is fuel? Now, I know it sounds silly for me to ask that question. You probably all are very well aware of what it is, but building our understanding on basic fundamentals will help later on. So a fuel is a substance that contains energy. More importantly, it's energy that can be released and then harnessed to do work of some kind, even if that work is just as simple as releasing heat. So we can think of fuel as stored energy that we must release in some way, typically through a type of chemical reaction, such as through the process of burning it. Now, ancient humans figured out that wood works pretty great as a fuel if you can figure out how to set the stuff on fire. There were, you know, there were plenty of trees around. There's a lot of wood available, and it contained enough energy to be practical. It could keep you warm. It could provide light. So wood was a really good fuel source for a very long time. Now, you might remember from science class that fire needs three things to exist, the, the triangle, right? You need to have fuel, you need to have an oxidizer, such as, you know, oxygen, and you need heat. If you are missing one of those three things, you don't get fire, which honestly is a good thing or else we wouldn't be here. I mean, if, if wood and oxygen were all you needed, then wood would catch fire immediately upon being exposed to oxygen. If you didn't need oxygen, then once a fire started, it would be really hard to put it out since nearly all of our methods of extinguishing a fire rely upon removing oxygen from that triangle I just talked about. Now, there's an actual chemical reaction that happens when you have wood in an oxygenated environment and it reaches its ignition temperature. When wood reaches about 150 degrees Celsius, or 300 degrees Fahrenheit, some of the cellulose material that makes up the wood begins to decompose into three different types of stuff. You get volatile gases, which release from the wood, and to, they, they, that's what smoke is. That's part of, uh, you know, the stuff we can see, that's part of the volatile gases released from wood when it reaches that temperature. And volatile gases consist of compounds of hydrogen, carbon, and oxygen. You also get a substance of nearly pure carbon called char, and that's what charcoal ends up being. And you end up with a byproduct called ash. And ash is all the stuff in wood that isn't actually burnable. It just is left behind, stuff like calcium. When the volatile gases get up to around 260 degrees Celsius or 500 Fahrenheit, the material in the wood breaks down and recombines with oxygen, forming stuff like carbon dioxide and water vapor. And we call the actual process burning. And this chemical reaction generates a lot of heat. That heat is enough to sustain the reaction as long as there is fuel and oxygen present. So it will continue to burn until the fuel is gone. If this didn't happen, then a fire would flare up, but then quickly die down because the heat would not be sufficient to keep the reaction going. Not all fuels burn the way wood does. Wood burns up and leaves behind stuff like char and ash. And you can use char as fuel as well, though that reaction is much slower than it is with wood. Uh, but other fuels work in a different way. Still, the basic idea is that you've created a chemical reaction using a substance to produce heat, and then you can harness that heat to do something useful. So, for example, you could use that heat to boil water to generate steam. You could channel that steam so that it had to pass through a turbine. And the force of this escaping steam 
would be strong enough to rotate the turbine, which could use magnets to induce electricity to flow through a conductor, and bam, you've got yourself a steam-powered electrical generator, and you can generate electricity that way. Now, the entire world is largely dependent upon fossil fuels right now. And this is where things are immediately tricky, because if you trace back the source of fossil fuels, you get to organic material. So in other words, biological material. So you could make a very technical argument that fossil fuels are biofuels. But that's kind of missing the point, and it's being super pedantic, and I'm told nobody likes it when I do that, which is a really big blow to me and my personality, especially at parties. Now see, fossil fuels are called that because they've developed over the course of millions of years under intense heat and pressure under layers and layers and layers of material. Layers of rock, sand, sediments, and soil, they all build up over decayed organic material. Most of the, uh, the fossil fuels that we end up getting uh, came out of algae that died millions of years ago. Uh, seaweed and algae would be the two big ones, but other stuff as well. And uh, the pressure and time over the course of these millions of years break down that organic material and it transforms into stuff like coal and oil and natural gas. But it takes millions of years for that to happen. So that is why we call this a non-renewable resource, a non-renewable source of energy. It's not that they're truly non-renewable, right? Not if you were able to live forever. Right? In the super, super long term, over the course of millions and millions and millions of years, you could renew those resources. But for our purposes, for humans, they're non-renewable. I mean, for all practical purposes. Because keep in mind that modern humans have only been around a few thousand years. Nowhere close to a million, let alone hundreds of millions. So there's no way we could wait hundreds of millions of years more for the Earth's supply of fossil fuels to replenish. Heck, by the time stuff from the dawn of humanity has transformed into fossil fuels, we may very well be extinct as a species. So we can't really think of it as renewable. It doesn't make any sense. Oh, and... When we say organic material, we're chiefly talking about carbon. Carbon is king here. Uh, burning these fossil fuels unleashes that carbon that had previously been locked away inside coal or gas or oil and deep under the Earth's surface. Now, mainly it gets unlocked and released in the form of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas and contributes to climate change in a really big way. So when we talk about fossil fuels, from an environmental perspective, uh, we're really talking about dumping an enormous amount of carbon dioxide, along with some other not-so-healthy gases, into the environment. And this is carbon that had previously been safely locked away, and moreover, it's into an environment that cannot easily process this excess amount of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is part of a natural cycle on Earth, but that cycle is dependent upon the steady supply of carbon dioxide, or really a, a stable supply, not an increasing supply. But we are unleashing yet more carbon dioxide that had previously been locked away down underneath the earth. Now, on top of that, there are many other things that go into the extraction, processing, refining, and distribution of fossil fuels. And all of that also adds into the environmental impact overall, as well as the cost of the fossil fuel industry. Some extraction methods cause greater environmental damage than others, 
But none of them are exactly eco-friendly. They're just levels of bad. And to be fair, biofuels are not magically immune to this. We will look at how biofuels can also have a negative environmental impact. They do not get a free pass on this. Um, again, critical thinking is key here. We need to look at all the different factors of all the different options. Now, despite the fact that fossil fuels are non-renewable and that we're dumping tons of carbon into the atmosphere every day, we depend heavily on these fossil fuels. According to the World Bank, fossil fuels account for about 80% of all energy consumption around the world. So they represent the primary energy consumption path we humans rely upon today. So why is that? Why do we rely upon it so heavily if we see these potential negative consequences to using them? Well, for one, these fuels are dense with energy, which means you get a lot of oomph when you burn the stuff. Plus, we've built systems and infrastructures around the idea of harvesting, processing, and burning these fuels. Now, some of the elements in those systems we might be able to adapt so that they could handle a change to a different fuel source, right? So, in other words, the stuff we've already established, we might be able to repurpose. But some things we probably couldn't repurpose. So that would mean that switching the, the, to a different fuel, it's not just as simple as saying, hey, this stuff's pretty bad for our environment, because it may also mean having to make really big systemic changes across the board which is difficult and it's expensive. Now, that's not to say it wouldn't be worth the investment. When you look at the alternatives, especially if you look at the consequences of climate change over the long term, you could make a very convincing argument that this is an investment we have to make. But it's hard to get that ball rolling because when you've already got another option that's easier, the tendency is to go to the easier option, even if that option isn't, you know, better. It's just easier. Now, over time, the supply of these fossil fuels will dwindle, particularly as we see our consumption trends globally on the rise, and we'll see the price for them go up because supply will go down, demand will be increasing. In order to reflect that, you're going to see prices go up, not even in order to reflect it. That's just the way the world works of economics. So we've already seen global conflicts that hinge at least in part on access to fossil fuels. Those will likely escalate should our dependency remain steady while supplies decline. So in other words, we could see instability across the world as a result of this dependence upon uh, fossil fuels. Okay, but what are biofuels then? Well, these are fuels that come from biological materials, organic material, uh, biomass. In other words, they can be solid fuel. Uh, a wood is an example of a solid biofuel. Uh, or poop, you know, manure, that can be a solid fuel. They can also be liquid fuels, such as grain alcohol, also known as ethanol. Uh, they can be gases, like various synthetic or syn gas products, which in itself is sort of a, a shorthand for synthetic natural gas. Now, like fossil fuels, these fuels also release carbon when you burn them, though not necessarily as much as fossil fuels might. But more importantly, you can replenish these fuels much faster by growing new biomass, new feedstock. And changing to a reliance on biofuels would mean having to plant the stuff. And while it's growing, it's essentially a carbon storage unit. 
It's taking carbon into itself. So it's taking it out of the environment. And so you're actually locking it down for the duration of growing the stuff. So rather than dumping new carbon into the environment by unlocking stuff that had previously been stored away in petroleum or coal, you've got a cycle of carbon in the form of your fuel crop, at least ideally. So prehistoric humans relied on biofuels like wood, but even some early inventors in the era of internal combustion experimented with biofuels. Rudolf Diesel, for whom the diesel engine is named, built his engine to run on peanut oil. He imagined a future in which engines would run on various vegetable oils. Now, when we come back, I'll talk about more about biofuels and, and divide them up into two big categories and talk about some of their pros and cons. But first, I want to give you this word from our sponsor. Now, whoever said it's all about the journey has never traveled during the holidays. It's the most stressful, craziest time to hit the road. But Away's products are designed to work and fit together, making travel smoother for the holidays and beyond. You know, a few years ago, I was trying to get a flight back from Philadelphia to Atlanta. That's all I needed to do. But because of weather and mechanical issues all happening at once, in order to get home, I actually had to do a pretty crazy trip. I had to go from Philadelphia and fly to Cincinnati. Then I had to fly from Cincinnati to Washington, D.C., and then fly from Washington, D.C. back to Atlanta. I had to keep up with my bag the whole time, too, and I had to rush through unfamiliar airports trying to get to the right gate. It was incredibly stressful, and I was dealing with a stubborn old suitcase. They had one wheel that didn't turn so well, so I kept having to pick it up because it would keep falling over. It would wipe out as I was pulling it along the concourse. It would have been so much easier if I had just had a suitcase from Away. Now, everyone has a unique travel style, which is why Away offers a range of suitcases made of different materials like polycarbonate, aluminum, and durable nylon. It also offers a variety of colors and two carry-on sizes. So for whoever you are and whatever you need to pack, whether it's gifts or clothes or holiday treats, Away has luggage that works for how you travel. All of Away's suitcases are thoughtfully designed to last a lifetime with durable exteriors that can withstand even the roughest of baggage handlers. And trust me, I've seen these guys in action. They could be Olympic athletes in hurling various luggage-sized things as hard as they possibly can. The, the suitcases have four 360-degree spinner wheels that guarantee the smoothest roll even through the most hectic of airports and stations, and that's what I needed when I was going through all those different airports. Away products are designed to last a lifetime. If any part of your suitcase breaks, Away's standout customer service team will arrange to have it fixed or replaced. There's a 100-day trial on everything Away makes. Take the product out on the road and live with it, travel with it, get lost with it for 100 days. If you decide it's not for you, you can return any non-personalized item for a full refund during that period. No ifs, ands, or asterisks. Away offers free shipping and returns on any order within the contiguous U.S., Europe, Canada, and Australia. For $20 off any suitcase or bag, visit awaytravel.com tech and use promo code tech during checkout. Again, for $20 off any suitcase or bag, visit awaytravel.com tech and use promo code tech during checkout. All right, let's get back into biofuels. So the two main forms of biofuel are biodiesel and ethanol. Now, as I just mentioned, biodiesel comes from stuff like vegetable oils or fats or greases. You can run diesel engines on this stuff without having to alter the engine at all, which is pretty darn handy. Now, 
That's not to say a gallon of vegetable oil has the same energy density as a gallon of petroleum-based diesel fuel, but the fact that you can run diesel engines on vegetable-based fuels is a huge plus. You can take used oil from stuff like a fryer and, with a minimum amount of processing, use it as fuel for something like a diesel engine. Now, there's also work being done on what's called third-generation biodiesel, which would come from stuff like algae and cyanobacteria. Now, these sources could potentially yield an enormous amount of biodiesel with respect to the amount of area they take up on Earth. So, in other words, you you need to think about factors like how much physical space is the uh, production of these biofuels going to take? Because we have a limit to that, right? We don't only have so much space on the planet. And we have to dedicate it for various things. So we have to reserve only a certain portion of that for the production of fuel. Well, you want your fuel to be dense and you want to be able to to get a lot of it in as little space as possible so you can dedicate the rest of that space for other things. That's one of the potential benefits for using things like algae and cyanobacteria. You could grow a great deal of the stuff that could yield a good amount of energy for the amount of area it takes. But right now, the process to convert that stuff into biodiesel is a little bit on the expensive side, and that means it's not as attractive. So if that expense comes down, it could become an economically viable option. But if it doesn't, then from a financial standpoint, you could argue that it makes more sense to use a different source for biodiesel or using petroleum-based diesel, even though the alternative would make less use of space. Biodiesel fuels do create pollutants on burning. They do not burn totally clean. They aren't some sort of magic material. Uh, But the amount of pollutants is significantly lower than you would find with petroleum-based diesel. On top of that, biodiesel is non-toxic, and it's also biodegradable. So the fuel is safer to handle and dispose of than petroleum-based diesel is. Uh, There are other issues, but we'll get into that. Let's uh, look at the other type of biofuel, ethanol. So ethanol is alcohol. Like, it's the stuff that makes alcoholic drinks alcoholic. It's the same alcohol as you would find in beer or wine or hard liquor. It comes from fermented sugars, and it's used as an additive in fuels around the world. The three main types that you tend to find in the United States are E10, which is 10% ethanol and 90% gasoline, E15, which, no big surprise, 15% ethanol and 85% gasoline, and E85, which is not 85% ethanol. It's actually somewhere between 51 and 83%, depending upon the blend. Uh, And the rest of it is gasoline. So it's more than half uh, ethanol as opposed to gasoline. Now, unlike biodiesel, to use ethanol, an engine has to be designed to handle it above a certain percentage. Otherwise, you're going to get some problems as you try to burn the fuel. You might get damage to the engine or various engine components. And at lower percentages, the performance issues are negligible. And so in the United States, all gasoline-powered engines are rated to run E10 ethanol without any real issue. Beyond that, though, you would need a fuel-flexible vehicle to take advantage of higher percentages of ethanol without causing damage to the engine. Ethanol comes from fermenting various plants. Uh, In the United States, it's almost exclusively corn. So it makes up the vast majority of all feedstocks used to create ethanol in the U.S. But farmers have also tried other stuff like sugarcane, potato skins, beets, yard clippings, rice, and switchgrass. Now, in Brazil, sugarcane is far more common as a feedstock. 
and nearly all the cars in Brazil can run on pure ethanol rather than on a mixture, uh, although mixtures of gasoline are also still sold in Brazil, but you could run most Brazilian vehicles on pure ethanol. Ethanol also traces its history as a fuel for cars way back to the early days. Henry Ford designed the Model T to run on a mixture of gasoline and alcohol way back in 1908. Mixing ethanol in with gasoline reduces the amount of pollutants emitted when burning the fuel. In the United States in the 1970s, the oil crisis led to large investments in producing and distributing ethanol so that it became a standard type of fuel and has pretty much stayed that way since. So, in other words, they were looking at, well, we're going to have fuel shortages unless we can make up some of that volume of fuel with another substance that we can produce here in the United States. That substance was ethanol. Now, as it turns out, it gets way more complicated than all this. You can't really go apples to apples with fossil fuels and biofuels. So let's get down to some of the sticking points that make this a tricky debate, right? One of those is the amount of energy that's stored within these fuels, because not all fuels are created equal. A gallon of gasoline and a gallon of ethanol, for example, contain different amounts of energy. A unit we use to measure the amount of energy within fuel when it's, you know, burn it, released when you burn it uh, is BTU, or British Thermal Unit. This unit, in turn, is based off the amount of heat needed to increase the temperature of one pound of water by one degree of Fahrenheit. And I can hear all the folks in other countries rolling their eyes right now. I hear you rolling your eyes. I can't see you, but your eye rolling is making noise because this is a very non you know, metric way to go about things. So the metric system would use units like uh, the calorie, which describes the amount of heat needed to heat one gram of water by one degree Celsius. And the, uh, the unit to measure energy would be the joule. One BTU is equal to around 1,055 joules, more or less. Okay, so you can really think of BTUs as shorthand for how much energy is stored within this given fuel. And so you want a bigger number, right? The bigger the number, the more energy is in that fuel, the more work you can do with that amount of fuel. And here's where we see one of the big differences between fossil fuels and biofuels. So a gallon of gasoline contains approximately 124,800 BTU, so nearly 125,000 BTU. A gallon of ethanol would represent only 80,000 BTU. So 80,000 to 125,000. So the amount of energy within a gallon of ethanol is less than what you would get with a gallon of gasoline. All right, so let's take a slightly bigger picture look. We're using fuel to do something, right? Like, let's say we're using it to power a car. And let's say we're operating the car at steady demand for energy. There's no point where the engine is going to require uh, more power. So we're just thinking of it as like a nice, smooth, steady road. Now, granted, this isn't really how stuff works in the real world, but simplifies things for the purposes of our discussion. You'd be able to drive the car further on a gallon of gasoline than you would be able if you were using a gallon of pure ethanol. In fact, you would need 1.56 gallons of ethanol to get you as far as a single gallon of gasoline could take you, assuming all other factors remain the same. So... This makes the discussion about greenhouse gases also a little more complicated because burning a gallon of ethanol will release less carbon dioxide than burning a gallon of gasoline. But remember, the ethanol does less work. So really, you have to burn 1.56 gallons of ethanol to represent the same energy released as one gallon of gasoline. 
And that starts to shave away some of the advantage of releasing less CO2 because you're in fact burning more fuel to make up for the shortfall in energy density. Even so, you're still producing fewer pollutants in just the, strictly the burning of the fuel itself. So there's still a benefit to using ethanol. I just wanted to point out that it doesn't quite make sense to go gallon for gallon when you're talking about pollutants because you're going to need to use more ethanol to do the same amount of work you could with gasoline. Still, another thing to keep in mind is ethanol is carbon neutral, which means that the amount of carbon released equals the same amount of carbon that the organic material absorbed during its full lifespan. And with ethanol, in the U.S., like I said, we're really talking about corn here, right? So if we were to stop all fossil fuel generation right now, like we, we no longer harvest it, refine it, we're done with fossil fuels, we're just using biofuels uh, magically somehow, we would be working with a more or less closed cycle, right? Because we wouldn't be dumping new carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. We would be locking it away in whatever fuel stock we were growing. And then we'd be releasing it again when we burn the fuel stock. But then we'd have a new generation of fuel, uh, of feedstock growing. I keep saying fuel stock, but I mean feedstock. Uh, we'd have a new generation of feedstock growing that would lock that carbon away again, and you would just have this cycle. It's like the water cycle. It would all stay the same. You wouldn't have an increase in carbon dioxide because you're not unlocking carbon that was previously locked away deep under the earth. Now, according to the U.S. Department of Energy, taking the full life cycle of ethanol into account amounts to an average reduction in greenhouse gas emissions of 34%, assuming you're using corn-based ethanol, because that factor matters a lot. If, however, scientists can produce ethanol efficiently using cellulose-based feedstocks, meaning more woody parts of plants, so you wouldn't have to grow corn, you could grow lots of different stuff, and you wouldn't necessarily have to use good farmland for it because this stuff is really hardy and it can grow in lots of different conditions, then you could see a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions go up as high as 108%, taking into account the, the full life cycle of ethanol. Now, the reason I even bring this up is to point out that this is a more complicated discussion than just fossil fuels are bad. I did mention earlier that there are other considerations too, like national security. So what do I mean by that? Well, Let's say you live in a nation that is heavily dependent upon fossil fuels and that to meet the demand that your country has, uh, you have to import fuel from other parts of the world because you don't produce enough of it at home to meet your needs. Now, that means that the day-to-day -day operations in your country are dependent upon the exports of other countries. And should you have any, say, diplomatic issues with those other countries, or if the oil industry in those countries were to somehow be impacted by regional issues like a war or something like that, you could be in serious trouble. Your supply could be in jeopardy. So imagine rolling power outages across an entire country because there are fuel shortages, and those were all brought around because of some international dispute or a conflict. These things can and do happen, and it's a big reason why the United States began to use ethanol on a widespread basis in the 1970s. Or imagine that you're limited in options as to where you get your oil from. And the best source of oil, meaning the, the most plentiful or least expensive or however you want to define best in this particular scenario, it happens to be in a country that either engages in or supports efforts that are in opposition with your own. 
So in a drastic example, you might be feeding money into a country that is using that money to fund military operations that threaten your country or your allies. Or it might be a country that helps fund terrorist cells. Now, clearly, you wouldn't want to hand over cash to someone who wants to see you brought down, but at the same time, you have needs that have to be met. Now, that's what I mean by national security. Unless you are in a country with plentiful fossil fuel reserves, you're going to be at least partly dependent upon what other nations uh, are able to produce, and that is a security vulnerability. And if you have plentiful fossil fuels in your country, then you might be a tempting target for other countries that do not have those fossil fuel reserves. Biofuel advocates argue that biofuels can help migrate a country into energy independence. As long as the country is capable of growing the right feedstocks, then it can wean itself off of fossil fuels and depend more on biofuels to meet its energy needs. It creates industry within the country itself as farmers grow the feedstock for the rest of the nation, producing the basic fuel needed and freeing up the country from depending upon potentially unreliable partner nations. But again, to do that, you have to take a lot of other things into consideration. You have to consider the actual needs of the public. How much energy is the public consuming on a daily basis? How much biofuel would you need to grow in order to meet the demand of the public? Is there actually enough capacity within your country to grow that feedstock while still dedicating sufficient farmland for other purposes? You know, like growing food. If not, then you're trading energy dependency for food dependency. And instead of being in danger of blackouts, now you're in danger of starving. Or at the very least, you're in danger of affecting the economics of food prices. Because if you have less land for food production, you're going to have a smaller supply of food. The demand for food is going to remain high because people got to eat. So you would, this would most likely be reflected in rising food costs. Beyond capacity, you have to take into consideration the environmental impact of growing feedstocks in the first place, of the actual process of farming and harvesting and then refining this stuff into fuel. So farming on its own just requires a lot of water, and it also can create a lot of pollutants. Uh, so while the process of burning the fuel could be cleaner than fossil fuels are, like if you put a gallon of gasoline and a gallon of ethanol and a gallon of biodiesel and you measured all the pollutants that came out, you would say, oh, the gasoline's producing more pollutants. That might be true, but you have to take into consideration all the other contributing factors. And you have to consider these factors as they grow to scale as well. It's possible that at a smaller scale, the environmental impact isn't really that severe and biofuels come out as a clear superior choice over fossil fuels. But then as you start to scale up in order to meet all the energy needs of a country, it's possible for that to actually change. Now, for one thing, farming equipment still largely runs on fossil fuels. So you still have to burn fossil fuels to create the alternatives to those fossil fuels, which Seems like that's a problem. It means that maybe you need to start developing, you know, farming equipment that runs on biofuel to help alleviate that. But then you also have stuff like fertilizer. You need fertilizer to help grow things like corn. And fertilizer requires fossil fuels in its manufacturing process. Then there's the transportation of all this stuff, like the trucks that are taking it to and from places, whether it's raw feedstocks or refined fuel. All of this is part of that infrastructure I was talking about earlier. Now, that's one of the big reasons that scientists are working to improve the efficiency of cellulosic ethanol. Cellulosic ethanol comes from those more woody parts of a plant, and it's more challenging to get a big yield from that type of feedstock. 
But on the other hand, it's way easier to grow that stuff and it requires less of an investment in resources. And it also produces fewer pollutants, right? Because if you don't have to use as much heavy equipment to farm the stuff, then you're not burning as many fossil fuels. So you can also use low-quality land to grow cellulosic feedstocks, stuff like switchgrass, for example. That allows you to reserve the higher-quality land for food production farming, so you don't have that conflict between do you grow food here or do you grow fuel here. But unless you can get the conversion rate high enough, that is, the rate of fuel you get from the amount of biomass you're growing and processing, then you're fighting a losing battle. Because if it, if it costs less and requires less work to use something like corn or sugarcane, then it may not make sense to switch over to cellulosic feedstock right? You have to look at all the different pros and cons. Now, that being said, a lot of work is going into improving the conversion rates for this stuff. And if it works out, it could be a huge game changer. In fact, it will be a big game changer if it works out because the amount of work would be low compared to stuff like corn and you would be looking at a big energy gain, meaning that the energy represented by the fuel would be sufficiently higher than the amount of energy that was spent creating the fuel in the first place. Like if it takes you X amount of energy to produce the fuel, and the fuel represents X plus one, you could argue, well, that wasn't really enough of a gain. Uh, it was negligible, and therefore, we barely broke even. We just barely got ahead. Uh, you, want, you want to have a sufficient gain of energy based on, you know, how much you've put in. Now, when we come back, we'll go into a few more considerations that we have to take into account when we talk about biofuels. But first, let's take a quick break. So I've covered some of the big concerns that we have to keep in mind with biofuels. I have a couple more to mention, but first I thought it'd be interesting to talk about the actual methods used to create more advanced biofuels from biomass. Uh, you know, beyond just fermentation. Like, what are the processes we're talking about? Why is there this block between uh, the harvesting of biofuels and the processing it? So, generally speaking, the first challenge is breaking down the cellular walls in plant cells, which contain stuff like cellulose and uh, lignin. And this material is tough, and it represents sort of an energy barrier, right? You want to get at the sugars that are inside these plants in order to ferment them, for example, for, for the purposes of ethanol. You want to ferment those sugars and, and produce ethanol, but you have to get the, to, the, to the sugar first, and you've got these tough barriers in your way, so you have to break those down. There are a couple different ways of doing that. In fact, there are two broad approaches to breaking down the material, uh, high-temperature deconstruction and low-temperature deconstruction. So let's talk about low-temperature first, actually. Typically, in this approach, you would mix this biomass with some chemicals or some biological enzymes, and their job is to break down this uh, cellular material so that, you know, break down those barriers, uh, the cellulose, the lignin, that kind of stuff, so that you can actually get to the sugars. Uh, it, it creates a new kind of material that is typically called an intermediate because it is in between the raw feedstock and the processed fuel. It's kind of a stage in the middle. So the chemicals or enzymes break down the exposed sugar polymers into simple sugar building blocks, and that can then go into a further fermentation process to produce ethanol. Then you have 
the high temperature deconstruction method, which actually has a, a few different ways of, of working. It all depends on your specific approach. So one of those approaches is called pyrolysis, in which you put the biomass into an oxygen-free chamber, and you heat that chamber very quickly to a very high temperature, between like 500 and 700 degrees Celsius. Now, remember earlier I mentioned if you want to have a fire, you need three elements, right? You got to have fuel, you have to have heat, and you have to have an oxidizer. Well, in this case, you only have two of those three. You got fuel and you have heat, but you don't have an oxidizer. Now, that means the material heats up but doesn't burn. It goes through pyrolysis. This process means that the cell walls actually do break down, and then you can take the material after you've gone through this process and put it through fermentation. To create syngas, you could take the biomass and heat it in the presence of a small amount of oxygen, and you would increase the temperatures beyond what you would use for pyrolysis. You're going in excess of 700 degrees Celsius. This creates a gas that's mainly a mixture of carbon monoxide and hydrogen and can be used as sort of a synthetic natural gas. Then, uh, if you wanted to make biodiesel from algae, you could use a different high-temperature method called hydrothermal liquefaction, which I'm pretty sure the spa right down the road offers as a luxury treatment, but maybe they just don't understand what words mean. Anyway... What it actually means is that you would be using the biomass with a little bit of water and you put it inside a pressurized chamber and you would heat that pressurized chamber up between 200 to 350 degrees Celsius and that would rapidly turn the biomass into a sort of synthetic crude oil. You have a bio oil. Now, typically, after deconstruction, you have to take this intermediary material and then put it through another process or maybe... a two processes in order to get actual usable biofuel, this is where we start running into not just energy barriers, but cost barriers and also potential environmental impact, right? All of these processes require energy. They all have byproducts. This is why you have to look at these systems as a whole as opposed to narrowing your focus down on just the simple burning of fuel. Because if you do that, you might be ignoring other challenges that have real-world impact and you could be in a position where you're no better off than where you started from. Or you might be better off in some ways, but worse off in others. That's why we have to take this sort of big picture approach. I find the whole process actually pretty fascinating for creating biofuels. Now, a few other factors that play into the debate around biofuels are that as farmers clear land to produce the feedstocks, you start seeing a decrease in biodiversity, particularly in places like the United States, where you know, they're clearing out enormous amounts of land in order to grow corn. Cutting down biodiversity is pretty bad for ecosystems, just generally speaking. You you want to have a lot of biodiversity and you want you don't want to decrease it if you can. Uh, there's also the danger of cutting down rich, eco-diverse environments like uh, the rainforest. You can see that in parts of South America where there are areas of ancient rainforests getting cleared away in order to create like an oil palm production facility. That's not great either. Uh, then again, if we are able to use stuff like algae for biodiesel and more grasses like switchgrass for ethanol production, we'd reduce the need to clear forests and reduce biodiversity. We could use land again that isn't quite as rich in order to grow this stuff. But the breakthroughs have to come first. And they have to be economically viable, which can be helped significantly through stuff like government subsidies. 
So it brings a political element into this as well. In addition, engineers and scientists are working on ways to capture carbon dioxide from things like power plants. Now, the captured CO2 could then be stored in some long-term storage technique, like pumping it into geological formations deep under the earth or in sediments under the ocean floor, essentially locking the carbon dioxide away inside the earth, kind of like how it was locked away before we started digging up all those fossil fuels to begin with. We'd essentially be returning the carbon to underneath the surface of the planet. And if we use biofuels to do all this, like instead of fossil fuels, we're just using biofuels to run our power plants and the equipment we use to generate electricity, we could begin to see an overall reduction of CO2 in the atmosphere, right? Because the feedstock would pull CO2 out of the atmosphere as they were growing. Uh, They would essentially be capturing and locking away carbon dioxide. And then you could further capture CO2 as it was being produced when you're burning it at the power plant. Then you could pump it down beneath the earth and lock it away and see an overall reduction in greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. You would actually be removing CO2, reversing that trend. Now, that's a pretty darn good goal to strive for, considering the current trajectory we're on with regard to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. But it requires a whole lot of stuff to fall into place properly and a lot of work done on our behalf uh, in order for this to all actually work out. It's not a technological problem so much as it is a person problem, like a social problem, political problem. There's a lot of complicated, messy stuff beyond the technology. Now, there are plenty of people who argue we should not be focusing on biofuels anyway, that really that's almost a lateral move off of fossil fuels when you take the big picture into account. I would argue that fossil fuels overall are more environmentally harmful than biofuels, but I also admit biofuels themselves are not perfect. They have a lot of of uh, contributing factors toward environmental damage as well. So there are people who say, we don't need to be thinking about any of this at all. Instead of talking about feedstocks, we should be relying on stuff like wind power, solar power, thermal, hydropower, that kind of stuff. Many of those solutions would require that we use some sort of energy storage technology, essentially batteries. We would have to have batteries because we wouldn't always have access to the stuff that was generating the electricity. And that's one of the big drawbacks for those technologies. Because right now, we essentially produce electricity when we need it. So when the demand is there, we have power plants that produce the electricity and it gets distributed throughout the power grid. And the power plant goes into heavier production at times of higher demand, and it can slack off a little bit when the demand is lower. And many of the green energy solutions produce electricity according to some external force. So, for example, solar panels obviously produce electricity when they're exposed to sunlight. When it's night, they're not producing electricity. But people still need electricity at night, so you have to have a storage system. You have to have batteries to store the electricity that you can use later on. And you would have to make sure that you can produce enough electricity during the day to meet everyone's needs, plus produce excess electricity that could charge up batteries so that you would have a supply whenever it's dark or overcast. Also, with these green energy solutions, they obviously won't work equally well everywhere in the world, right? If you live near the equator and you typically are in an area that gets a lot of sun exposure, solar panels make a ton of sense. But if you're closer to the poles and you don't get as many hours of sunlight during parts of the year or... Maybe you get more overcast days than sunny days on average. 
solar power might not be a great solution. And if you don't live near a river, hydropower becomes less viable and so forth, right? If you aren't in an area that regularly gets steady winds, wind power is an issue, all of these have drawbacks. There are other alternatives, such as nuclear power, but nuclear plants that rely on fission have their own set of problems, both practical and political. They produce nuclear waste. Some of it is extremely dangerous and needs to be disposed of in a secure location, far from many people, and kept sequestered from everybody else for thousands of years. But as you can imagine, not many folks are eager to have such a disposal facility located nearby. So... Even if nearby is still 100 miles away, most people are like, I'd rather that go somewhere else. So that's become a big issue. Nuclear plants are way more efficient, especially more efficient than they used to be. Uh, They do not produce greenhouse gases the way coal-fired plants or natural gas plants do. But they're still as – there's still this big issue, right? There's still this perception problem of them being unsafe. And there's a practical problem with the nuclear waste. Like – Even the safest nuclear power plant is still going to be generating waste that you have to deal with. Uh, That is something you just can't get around. Now, if we ever get around to making nuclear fusion work as an economically viable means of generating electricity, we'd be all set for a good long while. Nuclear fusion does not produce nuclear waste the same way nuclear fission does. Uh, It's the same nuclear process that we see in stars, right? The sun is a nuclear fusion power plant, essentially. If we could replicate that and we could harness that sort of energy economically, we'd be able to produce all the electricity we would need for a really good long while. We'd likely see a huge change. Like we'd see a migration to more electric vehicles, for example, because the energy source would be plentiful compared to more traditional fuels. But the big problem we face right now is that nuclear fusion requires an awful lot of energy to start. It it requires a lot of energy just to get a fusion reaction going in the first place. Sustaining a reaction or being able to do multiple reactions to generate electricity on a regular basis remains a really big challenge. So while we have had a few research fusion plants create reactions that produced enormous amounts of energy – we haven't quite cracked the problem of making it something practical that we can repeat without costing as much or more energy to start as we get out of it. So if you're having to pour more energy in than you're getting out, that's a losing proposition, right? You're, you're at a net energy loss. If you're getting more out than you put in, but it's incredibly expensive, that's a different challenge, but it's still a challenge. So we have a lot of hard decisions to make, right? We need to select one or more strategies for meeting our energy needs, and we need to move away from fossil fuels. That seems to be pretty darn clear for multiple reasons. And we need to acknowledge that these challenges each alternative has, that they exist. We have to acknowledge that. We need to consider how to overcome or mitigate those challenges in order to make the best choice for us. And we have to commit toward the action of moving away from fossil fuels instead of doing the sort of wishy-washy, well, this area, this this one's maybe not as good because of X, Y, and Z, and this one maybe not as good because of A, B, and C. Eventually, we have to say, here, let's make a plan. Let's identify and prioritize our approach. Let's diversify it. Let's not put all of our eggs in one basket. And let's actually do this. We have to do that at some point. The question is, when do we do it? 
Now, I don't bring up all the challenges or drawbacks in an effort to persuade anyone from pursuing alternatives to fossil fuels. I do it so we can move forward with our eyes on a solution and not just rhetoric. Uh, That is the biggest challenge I see, is that we, because we're looking for the perfect solution, we're not moving at all, and at least not as fast as we need to, Uh, particularly the United States, but other parts of the world also fall into that category. So that wraps up this discussion of biofuels. Like I said, it is complicated. It's something that uh, if you think about all the ins and outs, you realize, okay, I I can see why there's been a lot of debate on this subject. Uh, You can also see where there are potential arguments to be made by interested parties. Let's say that you're uh, a representative of the oil industry. Well, you can see plenty of opportunities to object to alternatives by pointing out their shortcomings uh, and you don't even have to address the problems of your own industry, right? You just hammer home that these alternatives have their own drawbacks and that can be enough to halt progress. Uh, We have seen that as well. I don't think it's so much a conspiracy as it's just people trying to protect their own interests um, and not being terribly obtuse about that. It seems pretty transparent to me. But we still have to get past it somehow. Um, It's imperative, really. I want to see a world uh, where my nieces, when they're adults, aren't struggling in an increasingly hostile environment due to environmental and fuel-related problems. That's the world I want to see. And uh, the only real way of making sure we get there is to find this alternative to fossil fuels. All right, well, that wraps up this discussion. Uh, I hope you guys got something out of it. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, feel free to reach out to me. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or to get in touch on uh, Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. You can pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You're going to find an archive of every single episode we've ever recorded there. Go check that out. And also you'll see a link to our online store. If you go to the link you will be able to see all sorts of merchandise that has tech stuff logos and other other show stuff on there. And uh, every purchase you make goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.